Hello and welcome to my office. I'm Carrie Lorenz. Thank you for joining me for conversations with fearless leaders from around the world to discuss the mechanics of high performance, success and failure, and what it takes to achieve more than you ever thought possible. Through the conversation ahead, I hope to challenge, inform, and inspire you to move fearlessly to higher levels of performance and to go further, faster. And that message starts right now. I am about to hack your brain. Joining me today is one of America's most respected authorities on security and intelligence operations. She was the first female to serve as White House Chief Information Officer during the Bush administration. Today, she runs a world-class cybersecurity consulting company. And in 2020, she was named the Cybersecurity Crusader of the Year, which sounds sort of like a new character in the Marvel Universe, but clearly it's not. She's also the author of the best-selling book, Manipulated, Inside the Cyber War to Hijack Elections and distort the truth. Teresa, welcome to my office. Hey, I love what you've done with the place. Thanks for having me. Oh, it's all in the lighting, but I'm so glad you're here today. And we are going to dive into all things social media, misinformation, cybersecurity, and actually why this matters to all of us, not just to the C-suite, not just to the executive team, because this is actually a threat to our national security, our supply chains. Uh, it touches every part of our lives, how we work, how we learn, how we are ordering our food, pay for gas, even how we stay in touch with each other, all of it. So to make it, I guess, to kind of do a level set right out of the gate for the lay person, Teresa, how, how do you even define cybersecurity? Hmm. That is a great question, Carrie. And um, I mean, you, you really kind of framed sort of the situation that we have. And, you know, I, I almost want to answer it with a question, which is, what is not cybersecurity? I mean, it's almost every organization now is truly a technology organization that happens to do what they do for a living. Um, almost everything requires some level of technology, even a master craftsman working with their hands. Most likely they double check their measurements with some type of a computer. They most likely had their customers find them, not just through word of mouth, but through a computer. And so cybersecurity has really evolved over the years and it'll probably be renamed something um, in the future. Maybe it'll be digital security. I'm not sure. But when you think about it, and you think about it in both business and personal terms. In personal terms, Carrie, you know, a lot of people think, you know, I spent a lot of money on my smartphone. Shouldn't it just be secure? And I spent a lot of money on, you know, this particular device. Shouldn't that home Internet of Things device be secure? And then go to corporate America or any, you know, nonprofit or government organization and they're buying technology that's incredibly expensive. And shouldn't they also assume that it's secure? And the challenge is that it's not. Um, so we really have to revisit and rethink what we call cybersecurity because it really needs to be much more built into the human design and the experience that the human has you know, right now it feels very bolted on. I mean, I don't know about you, Carrie, but do you love strong passwords? Like if I told you I was going to make everything you access a 20 character strong password that would expire every 30 days, would you still be my friend? I, you probably wouldn't. Mm, yes, I would. And I would be irritated. <laughs> um, and I feel like I am... I know enough to be dangerous about the cyber world and about passwords and what happens even from a corporate perspective, how many of the attacks are, are actually inside, um, I'm just going to use like really plain language, 
but it's been inside access where people's passwords haven't changed and maybe they've been gone from the company even for two years because we just lose track of that because so much of everything we use app-wise has a password. And yet even, I think it was a couple of years ago, one of the password maintainer apps was also breached. So then you're like, okay, well, I'm not gonna do any of that, right? I'm just gonna rotate, maybe I'll rotate my passwords once a year and in my mind, it's a general trend. And yet then I have cyber expert friends like you who literally their eyebrows, you know, go almost up off their foreheads. Like, what are you doing? And I'm like, yeah, but I'm doing better than the average bear, right? Like throw me a Scooby snack on this. But I think that part of what you even just said is the difficult part on, on all things cyber for people who this is not their job is that I do think that we have become accustomed to and comfortable with a certain level of, well, if my bank is breached, they'll take care of it. And as you've seen, and you've been on television talking about it and on the radio talking about it, you know, just, just a few months ago, there was the cyber attack on the water supply in Florida. Then we had the pipeline hack and one of the world's biggest meat companies by sales was hit by a ransomware attack. So, you know, first it kind of affected software and people that's distant from us, right? Like I don't see it happening. I get a notification from a major airline, hey, you need to change your password, I manage that. Then they go after our gas and people panic by and now they're going after beef and pork. What do you think it's going to take to peak people's curiosity so that individually we each start taking better ownership of protecting all of us as a whole. Yeah, no, I, you, you bring up a great point and you know, it, it's somewhat of a complicated response, but I always like to kind of go back to something that people can see and touch, which is, you know, kind of the concept of physical security. And so, for example, we know that we have first responders when there's emergencies. We know that we have law enforcement for both prevention and responding to um, incidents that occur in sort of a physical sense. We may see uh, building security. Uh, we may see cameras. We may see different things that sort of provide a level of monitoring. So all of those things in the physical sense exist. But then on top of that, we were always taught, you know, you don't want to make yourself a victim. So for example, if you do catch on fire, stop, drop and roll was something that I was taught. Mm -hmm. um, if there is an earthquake, um, you know, get out, you know, get into a doorway or get under a desk or get somewhere where things that are falling around you that you can at least be sheltered from. And the same thing of, you know, you don't want to be that next target because you're a distracted person walking to your car, fumbling for your keys, talking on your phone. And so there's certain things that are our responsibility, but then there are other things that are the responsibility of, you know, either an organization, a company, law enforcement, or first responders. We have to move that model that we all understand in the physical sense over to our digital lives and we haven't really done that yet carrie so i what's interesting to me is that when a cyber attack happens on a company it's one of the last places where we actually victim blame and shame uh, and we say gosh you should have done better you should have done more you should have spent more you should have had better people you should have done all these things and, you know, and then after something really bad happens, you know, then we send in the first responders. Well, what if we changed the conversation a little bit? And what if we said, yes, as a consumer and as a working professional, I do have a responsibility for myself and for the place that I work. And I need to be more up to speed on what I can do. But at the same time, that company and me as an individual there's something that we're never ever going to be able to do, right? Which is provide that true security infrastructure. We'll never be able to, as individuals, afford as a person or a company to invest what needs to be invested here. And that's really where 
um, the government really needs to do some out of the box creative thinking and come up with a new framework based on what we understand from the physical world and move it into this virtual digital world. And because if we don't, the even the most aware person in their personal life and employee in their work life is still going to fall prey because cyber criminals, that's the other thing, Carrie, I, you know, I've studied these cyber criminal mm -hmm. syndicates for more years than I care to um, actually count up. Um, but one of the things people need to realize is the better we get on the good guy and good gal side, they don't say, oh gosh, this is suddenly really hard. I should bake pies for my neighbor and get a new profession. They don't do that. They say, gosh, they made it hard. So what can I do to up my A game? Um, because I'm still gonna steal because there's really not a lot of risk in being caught or even seeing uh, the inside of a jail cell. So they'll just keep doing it. Well, and I think what what I see as well is that, and I, I'm so, so interested on your perspective on this, is that there's, we don't have a shared common language around the discussion around cyber, the way that we communicate, because there have been some phrases that have been leveraged from a political perspective and and i i'm not trying to lead you down a path of talking about politics um but in that language use what's happened instead of understanding the story and the genesis of propaganda everything gets politicized as one side or another instead of us being able to have a, a conversation that moves us forward on how do we handle this? How do we, as the military says, defend forward instead of being defensive? Oh, this is this is really um, so you hit kind of one of my sweet spots here around this. And on the protection side, I do believe you know an additional frontier has been added here around cybersecurity, and that is, as you mentioned, you know, combating misinformation disinformation and manipulation campaigns and and you know i feel so strongly about cybersecurity and really kind of helping people understand this it's the reason why i co-authored two books with a privacy lawyer ted claypool so i've got protecting your internet identity are you naked online and privacy in the age of big data but then i ventured out on my own and wrote my book manipulated and to your point not to get into politics, I always tell people like what I think about politics doesn't matter because I'm not an expert mm -hmm. in politics, but mm -hmm. I am an expert in studying the cyber criminal mindset and policy and the technical things that can be done. So I, I appreciate you kind of framing it that way, but you're right. There's we do have an infodemic happening and some of it we're doing to ourselves, but some of it is being done by a combination of different players you you know we often talk about unscrupulous nation states um, who for the record you know typically ends up being you know uh, russia china iran north korea they all deny it for the record um, but then you also have i've actually seen cases where unscrupulous business competitors trying to get a leg up on another company or in a merger and acquisition due diligence have actually promoted disinformation campaigns about their competitor. I've actually seen during um, very challenging divorce scenarios where manipulation and disinformation campaigns are promoted um, by the ex about the other one using like a third party service. Uh, and then, you know, there's, there's the other piece, which is just on a personal level, uh, people falling prey to disinformation. And in some cases, it just cements, you know, a, a personal mm -hmm, belief mm -hmm. system around a social issue. But in other cases, it can be really quite dangerous what people are open to believing in the actions they take because of that disinformation and misinformation. Well, and let's let's come back to that for a second, because one of the things that I know I shared, and it's, this is not around uh cyber per se uh which again foot stomper your book manipulated one of the 
best books I've read in the last year and a half about all things cyber and misinformation and bias and even historically, uh, how did we get here with again, you do, I think, a fabulous job of keeping things very apolitical. So I would highly recommend to anybody listening to this, please go buy this book, give it as gifts, give it as anniversary presents, give it, give it, give it, because we have to figure out a way collectively to move through what is a very dangerous time right now. That being said, when we think about how ripe we are in the US right now, lots of different pockets, the genius behind the misinformation is that when you understand how your brain works, my brain, your brain, your cousin's brain, your aunts, your uncles, everybody's, is that there's there's a dynamic involved that's called uh, negative bias. And that in a nutshell, it means that negative events have a greater impact on our brains than positive ones do. So this has a really powerful effect and it's a huge lever when it does come to that misinformation uh, campaign or situation that we find ourselves in. So what's happening is that we have this vulnerability that the people who want to undo the foundation of our steadiness, if you will, um, are capitalizing on it. And as consumers, as digital consumers, it has been shown that the overwhelming majority of people are still not able to accurately identify misinformation. And even more dangerous, once you see the wrong information, you can be provided the correct information, verifiably correct information, and your brain still won't believe it because it believes the first thing it read. So how do we combat this? How do we have the conversations around this that won't become polarizing? So yes, uh, Carrie, you bring up, you know, I get asked this question a lot, like if you encounter people who, you know, just refuse to listen to additional information that may actually change their opinion um, for their, you know, for their own good, or at least open their mind to different points of view. And one of the things I always tell people is as it relates to helping people along, the best recommendation I can give, because I've seen it work, if you really want to change hearts and minds and you have people in your circle that are posting misinformation, disinformation, I always say, give them grace and give them space. And so one of the things that I will do is I'll actually reach out to them one-on-one. -on -one. I won't correct them on social media in front of everybody. That's usually a losing strategy. Uh, and I'll approach them one-on-one -on -one and I'll say, I saw this thing that you posted and I would like you to tell me more about that. How did you, where did you find that? Um, how did that make you feel? Because I need to meet them where they are so that I can bring them to where I am, or at least get them started on their journey. And then I'll say to them, I did some, you know, I'll, and I won't try to do it all in one conversation. And then I'll come back to them and say, you know, I read that article and I found it very interesting. I also decided to take a look at what these other news media organizations had to say. I also checked and you can pick your pick. It can be Snopes, it can be PolitiFact, it can be Urban Legend, different fact-checking sites that are out there. And I'll say, I also looked at these and I looked at these and I would like you to read what I found. And then I would like us to have a conversation about it. And I will tell you that has been a true winning strategy for the people that are in my work and personal circles to kind of bring them along. And it does matter. And people may say, well, you can't really scale that. Well, you can act you mm -hmm. actually can scale that because if you take one person and you take the statistic that a mistruth uh, actually travels on social media six to nine times faster than a truth, if you take one person and they stop posting or they do their research before they post, you will make a huge difference. 
So that's been my best strategy on a personal level, space and grace strategy. Mm, I love that. And I think that's, that's not only sage advice, but when you think about that ripple effect, to your point, that math matters. Because if you, if you can extract or eliminate or say somebody would take down something that you know is, and again, this isn't from an opinion perspective, it's just verifiably untrue, um, or even a sourcing that having that type of conversation hopefully will allow people to not feel defensive. And I love that you take it offline, that you don't engage in, in the monkey poo throwing contest online because I haven't seen many winners in, in any of that when that starts to happen because people will defend their turf. And I think when you're asking those questions as well, it encourages people, all of us, to, to start thinking a little more critically instead of having our amygdala hijacked by the feeling of outrage. Yeah, I mean, that whole, everybody has it, that confirmation bias. And, you know, I'm so glad you brought up the point around sort of like negative scenarios. You know, that's that fight or flight, which, you know, by the way, so I, I have to plug your book, Span of Control. I'm so fortunate I got a preview copy. So thank you very much. Um, and I I often read excerpts of it to um uh, my son, who, as you know, is at boot camp with the Marine Corps um, on an aviation billet. So just super proud of him and super proud of you, Carrie, for that book. But, you know, one of the things that as it relates to negative, you know, that fight or flight impulse. And so we're, I mean, part of survival is, you know, don't do that again. And so, the, you know, or, oh, that was a bad experience and it, and it ends up resonating and it does play out in not just the negative, but that confirmation bias. So when you have somebody or, or kind of a clickbait ad that hits your newsfeed and it hits that confirmation bias, you finally feel validated and you're like, aha, I knew it. Mm -hmm. I knew mm -hmm. it and nobody else saw it, but I saw it. And then you post it and it really does give the person, they actually get endorphins from it because then they get validated by the people who like it and comment. And so there is, you know, there's a, there was a study done on, you know, when people get likes or reposts or reactions to their posts, the endorphins that are released are actually more than when a professional gambler wins a hand. Wow. Yeah. So when you see somebody who just like over and over again is peddling in this, part of it is they're, feeding their need for endorphins. They're, they they need that rush and they get the rush from doing that. That's crazy. That's crazy. Well, and it's fascinating, and this isn't really a cyber piece, but to the psychology piece of it, Instagram has been dabbling back and forth over the last six months with hiding likes from people. And I think just in this last week, they're like, yeah, no, we're still going to let them see that. It's it's only affecting the mental health of some people, but not everybody. And yet I think that that data point that you just shared, uh, if it's making that part of your brain light up that aggressively, that perhaps that's uh, a path that could be reconsidered. <laughs> I don't work at the social media companies. Nobody's asking my opinion on that. But the challenge is that it's not just that feel good in the moment is that what is the next action when your brain lights up like that that you are compelled to take and that's that long chain of events so one of the things teresa i want to kind of back it up a second because i found it fascinating in in manipulated how you share that you are a conspiracy theorist at heart and before anybody's brain goes down a track of, oh, you know, she's a crazy person, kind of flush that out a little bit because it involves your grandma, which I loved. Yes. So my Irish gram, um, so her parents came over. She was American through and through, but very true to her Irish heritage. Also a Sergeant Major's wife in the Marine Corps. Uh, and traveled the world with my mm. grandfather. And she basically said it was really important as a woman to be a critical thinker 
and to be fiercely independent. She was actually a semi-pro bowler as well. I mean, she kind of had her own just sort of interesting persona. And, and she had a lot of theories and she did a lot of reading and spent a lot of time when my grandfather would be deployed and my mom and sister would be doing, you know, her sister would be doing their thing, my auntie. And she would go to the library and she would read and read and read and make up her own mind. And she definitely had her own mind and her own opinion on many topics. And, and I still remember because, you know, and I talk about this in the book, Carrie, she, I remember her growing up, she would say constantly to me when something would come up and I'd say, I'm going to go vote, or I'm going to go, I'm going to go sign a petition, or I'm going to start a petition. And she would say, well, you know, I haven't voted since they killed the Kennedys. And (laughs) And so finally, I got to a point in high school and I said, just who are they? And so she went on this whole path of like, you know, basically the they, you know, people who want to control you and tell you how to think and what to think. And they feed you, you know, uh, news scenarios and it's not the full thing. And and so, you know, I I grew up in a family that told lots of stories had lots of opinions who loved America, um, but who were always very worried that there were people who didn't love America and that you know we weren't always being told everything we needed to know. And so I, I know that I have a bent towards conspiracies because I love these stories. I ate them up as a kid, these different conspiracies that my family would share. Um, you know, sort of the, I had lots, big Irish and Italian Catholic families. So I had uncles and aunties and cousins to spare carry, and I still have so many. And so you can imagine with that big of a family, you know, just the stories and the conspiracies that would be thrown around. And so knowing that about myself, but then picking computers as a field and doing programming, you have to apply logic. And so I would say to myself, okay, I know I love a good conspiracy theory and to go deep. So I need to always have a like a contrary, you know, sort of a champion challenger. So it's like if I want to believe in a certain conspiracy, what would be the alternate opposing hypothesis to that conspiracy? And so I always keep my confirmation bias in check by saying to myself, well, there must be something exactly the opposite. And what would that be? And so as I start to read things or pull in a fact pattern, I hold myself accountable for putting fact patterns on both sides of the equation. Um, And then I have a trusted cabinet of people and I'll say, you know, um, can I run this idea by you? And then basically run it by people I know and trust that'll say to me, your idea, like I see where you're headed with it, but I wouldn't take that fact pattern and apply it to that. So that I think hopefully that gives people a safe space when they read the book, whether you're a conspiracy theorist or not, you know, if you kind of know how my brain works, maybe you relate to that or maybe you don't, but maybe you have somebody in your family who does. And maybe you can kind of show them like, look, there there is a path for you. Here's here's a path that you can go down and you don't have to be controlled by conspiracy. Because if you think about it, who creates the conspiracy theory? Somebody who wants you to believe their fact pattern. Mm-hmm. That is also a manipulation campaign, mm-hmm. if you think about it, right? And, you know, we, we called it back in the day propaganda, but really it's, I want you to sort of see my way of thinking on this. And so I'm going to promote my theories and the facts that support my theories. I love that too. And I love the language around a fact pattern because it depersonalizes the way you're thinking that I think even in conversation lets you be more open to trying to, to, uh, figure it out, right. Figure out what's actually happening instead of bringing that bias baggage with you to the conversation right out of the gate. And, and to be clear, America, you know, as, as you have referenced before, is not the only target here. So this is happening worldwide. And, and I think you even referred to it and, uh, you know, correct me if I'm wrong on this in your book that it was in, I think it goes back to even 2013 that the World Economic Forum posted that yes. within its top 10 trends, online misinformation. So it feels like we are eight years 
into a situation that professionals have been trying to ring the bell on, but because it hasn't affected us individually on a level that pains us yet, we're not willing to move off of our password one, two, three, our casual hopping onto the open Wi-Fi. But again, this America is 100% not the only target here. This is a global, a global issue. It is a global issue. As a matter of fact, World Economic Forum, they called it in 2013. Many of us had been sounding the alarm uh, much sooner because the manipulation campaigns, they actually started with regimes wanting to stay in power, doing it to their own people. Uh, so they, you know, basically taking over news organizations or threatening news organizations. I mean, unfortunately, journalism and reporting as a profession is under attack. And, you know, regardless of how um, somebody listening to this today, Carrie, feels about one news organization or another, journalism integrity, you know, whether, whether you feel there's a bias or not, um, journalism as a profession is absolutely vital and essential for reporting on human rights issues, what's really happening, boots on the ground, um, for protecting democracy and for being a voice that is a, a voice that's making sure that the facts are the facts and being reported. And it's been under attack since before 2013, but certainly these different countries that want to manipulate their own citizens so that they can stay in power, uh, they definitely have put uh, journalism as a profession at risk. And so, for example, I write about them in my book, the Wumeo, the 50 centers who um, are paid to write, you know, sort of pro uh, China propaganda and um, to write sort of anti-American or anti-UK um, and to, you know, kind of really promote, um, you know, China is a great country and I'm not picking on China per se or the people of China by any stretch, but you do have these sort of in-country organizations around the globe who do it to their own citizens. You know, they want their citizens to think, uh, you know, you don't want to be like America or you don't want to be like Canada or you don't want to be like the UK. And then they'll just pick out something that's going on and then sort of promote a manipulation campaign around that issue. So, yeah, it is it is truly a global problem. Mm -hmm. And now I think even like like I mentioned at the top of our conversation with uh, the different ransomware attacks even that are just happening. And now it's going right after our food supply chain, which is clearly already under stress from production constraints, transportation costs, and quite frankly, even labor shortages stemming from the last 14 months of the, of the COVID pandemic. So who is really vulnerable right now? In many ways, we're all vulnerable. There's no industry that's not a target right now. And I can tell you because I get the distress calls uh, from companies and nonprofits that you know I haven't met before and they're under attack. Uh, right now, ransomware mixed with extortionware and destructionware is very, very popular. So it, it's very distressing and disturbing uh, it's incredibly lucrative to do. So let me let me unpack that a little bit for people. So ransomware alone started off more on taking over somebody's computer or device. And then they realized if they went after organizations, then they could probably get a bigger payload. And in the early days of working ransomware cases, Carrie, so pre-cryptocurrency, they mm -hmm. would have to have a way to get the money quickly and then basically launder the money and run away. Otherwise, they'd get caught, right? Mm -hmm. So if they're like, hey, yeah, just wire it to my account, like, hello, we will find you. So they, I, we didn't know how good we had it back then, but I remember one ransomware syndicate asked the client for payment in Starbucks gift cards. And I mean, you know, creative you got to hand it to them they either needed a caffeine buzz for the next you know thing they were going to do or they were going to be reselling those cards right 
but enter in cryptocurrency, which is incredibly challenging to trace. It can be done. It is very hard and it is a manual labor of love, um, just following little teeny tiny digital tracks to try to figure out who the wallet belongs to. And oftentimes by the time you do, the money's long gone, it's moved on to kind of the next waypoint. But but the ransomware syndicates realized if I only lock you up, maybe you're gonna restore from backup and not pay me. So what I need to do before I lock you up is I need to steal your data and then I need to show you I have your data and then I need to threaten that I'm gonna dump it on the internet and embarrass you and you're gonna be fined. So they moved to the extortionware. The other thing we're seeing is destructionware. So in order to try and get you to pay, they basically say you have eight hours or I'll start deleting your data. I'll mm -hmm. delete your systems, I'll delete your data and then you're not gonna have anything and they'll actually show you the stuff they're deleting. So it's really, accelerated and escalated to a very challenging situation. And we, we really need out of the box thinking here, Carrie, because the way they're getting in, uh, it used to be incredibly popular. You would have an email, you'd click on a link or an attachment, and that is still a popular method. But another method now is what are we, many of us doing? We're working from home. And so there's virtual access points between you and your organization, and they're attacking the virtual access points very successfully, um, mimicking the traffic of an employee, and then they're in, and then they're able to surveil you, really study what matters. They take the backups, they take the active systems, lock them up and then they threaten to destroy and or dump it on the internet and it's um we need international cooperation here i mean we really do need um i i really have high hopes uh with president biden that he will pull our allies together and come up with some type of an international accord he's named some pretty good people for cybersecurity positions. And if they were asking me for advice, I'd say the first thing is hammer out an international treaty or accord that one attack against one country is an attack against another country and work out what the ramifications need to be. Just like we have it in the kinetic sense, Carrie, right? So right, right. when you were flying, you decided, you know, I'm just going to take a little joy ride over to Canada and then I'm going to go over here. And you didn't get airspace permission. How quickly would you have been escorted? Right. And a heartbeat. And it's, it's interesting. It's what you're sharing as well falls in line with uh, a, a month or so ago, I talked to Brigadier General Len Anderson, who is currently the Deputy Commanding General of Marine Corps Forces Cyberspace Command. And in that weaving conversation, one of the things that he brought up was even our, from a consumer perspective and a general knowledge perspective, you know, people will plug in the nest and, you know, to, to protect their home or, or the doorbell ringer and don't think to change the password. And it's funny because I got something uh, the other day, a piece of technology, a gadget that comes preloaded with a password and there's no bold font. There's nowhere that says step one, you know, plug it in, power on, step two, change the password, step three, go back to step two, <laughs> right? <laughs> Don't, because, because to your point, it's, it's very easy when you have all of these very, very smart, very intelligent, determined hackers that can thread together your data pieces, all that, that cyber dust out there, and in an instant, take out a hospital right? Which is dosing, pharmacy, your records, they're not going to be able to set your broken elbow, you know, when your son falls off his skateboard or your daughter flies into your bumper on her roller skates. But yet it feels like, and as you know, and you work in, in the corporate space as well, although most boards are saying that cyber is one of their, now one of their top five priorities, the investment hasn't followed what they've shared as being a top priority. So, how do you say, say I'm just working in a corporate job and I'm fully aware of, of ransomware attacks and destructive 
ransomware attacks, destruction attacks. How, how do I help protect my company, my organization? How do, I, how do I keep it top of mind without being neurotic about it? Yeah, I mean, there are some really great best practices that every organization can do. One is have an ongoing end user awareness program and start with helping your employees understand how to protect themselves personally. Um, I've seen that work very effectively that if you focus mm -hmm. on here's how to protect yourself, your aging parents from fraudsters, your uh, Gen Z from predators, and then your personal identity and reputation that does carry into the workplace. So having that and don't try to do it once a year in like five hours, uh, have it something that's spaced out in sort of, you know, snackable um, things, you know, consumable, you know, kind of one topic, one thing you can do so, so that it's very easy for people to integrate into their routines. The next thing that businesses everywhere should consider, and this isn't just for ransomware, this is thinking about supply chain attacks like so what happened with SolarWinds and Mandian FireEye and uh, Microsoft. And so it's not just ransomware, it's other types of attacks is make sure that you're creating backups on a daily basis or even periodically throughout the day and have those backups not stored anywhere near your active system. So it needs to be out of band. It could potentially be offline or a cloud instance that's not the same cloud instance as your active systems. That is going to be your best line of defense for a natural disaster, a man-made disaster, and certainly any type of a cyber incident. Know how long it takes to actually restore from backup all the way to the point of data is validated and you can press the button and put it in production. I find that oftentimes companies ask a geek, hey, how long would it take us to restore? And mm -hmm. they give you a literal answer, take you mm -hmm. a couple hours. Well, first I got to find it. Do you want just any data or do you want me to find a certain date and time and certain data? Do you want it validated um, to make sure that the data um, stayed at a high level of quality? And then, you know, so actually timing that is really important. And then lastly, the, the one thing that companies could do is do proactive threat hunting. You know, it's sort of think about it as, you know, you could visit the dentist once or twice a year, but you could also dental floss, rinse and brush your teeth every day. So doing sort of that proactive threat hunting throughout the year, picking, you know, just sort of different parts of your organization that are very critical and have somebody look at you through the eyes of the adversary and look for potential threats can be a really great way to stretch your security budget. Um, you know, time is time is money, money is time. And, and I know money is hard to come by for many companies right now. And uh, that can really go a long way to improving your overall security maturity. I love that. And I love, well, love, we're going to put air quotes around that, the term um, or the idea of threat hunting. I know certainly in our world, uh, you know, we try to do from, from a flying perspective, red teaming, where we use the power of questions to try to gain focus and learn valuable lessons and actually look for potential causes of problems before they happen so that we can brainstorm solutions in that what if or worst case scenario. And boy, Teresa, you know, I love that, you know, this idea of being proactive and, and setting your team up for success, setting your people up for success. This is going to be as as we move to and and almost everything is now touching the Internet of Things, if you will, again, the way we order food, everything that we do, how we pay Venmo, PayPal, everything that I would ask people to consider, regardless of, of what position you sit in right now, whether you're a manager, you're a leader, you're an individual contributor on a police force, or you work in food service, whatever the case may be. There's the challenge right now, I think, that ego is going to get in the way, that it's not just a money problem, 
that people will say that will never happen to us and or that I'm too busy, we're too busy firefighting what's happening right now, or we'll we'll take a look at that when dot dot dot. But if we don't set our ego aside, if we don't simply it doesn't cost anything to communicate with our teammates, the critical nature of cyber and cybersecurity. So have you have you been able to work with a few teams? I would imagine you have, even from your consulting perspective, just even in the last six months that they said, we don't have budget, but what can we do? Yes, uh, it comes up a lot. Or we know we should spend more on this, but I only have this much in the budget. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. <laughs> so that comes up a right. lot. And so, you know, one of the things that um, I'm a big fan of is, can you leverage information that's readily available that's already been paid for? And one of the things for people to think about is, especially if you're an American-based company, is FBI has an organization called InfraGuard. And first of all, you can join it. Um, they will do a background check on you. Um, so if there's a warrant for your arrest out, you could be arrested if you go to a meeting. I've actually seen that happen. But as long as your background's not sketchy, uh, that you shouldn't have any problems. And what's great about that is once you're in the program, whether you go to the meetings or not, you can actually uh, join what's called a sector council. So whatever your business falls into, manufacturing, critical infrastructure, financial services, healthcare, creatives, you know, whatever vertical you fall into, they will put out alerts. They won't name who the other victims are, but they'll, they'll tell you there's a case. They'll tell you here are the files you should be looking for on your system. If you see these files, call us and, and we'll help you. They do uh, education awareness. The FBI will actually do a security briefing for your employees, for your board, no charge. It's already paid for. Um, DHS has the Department of CISA, CISA. They also put out bulletins, and oftentimes those bulletins are uh, written in a way that they're very consumable by consumers mm -hmm. and business people. Mm -hmm. So those are some great free resources that people can take advantage of for education and awareness, but also when bad things are happening, they're putting that information out in many cases, same day or the next day, on what you need to look for to make sure you're not gonna be the next victim. Um, so that's, to me, if you have no money to spend or you're trying to stretch your dollars, I would absolutely start there and take advantage of those resources. So two things, I'm really glad you brought up CISA. I've followed them for, for many years. They, they communicate so clearly and so effectively and they do move really fast and everything that I've seen super apolitical. So I like that piece of it as well. But Teresa, say again, what was the first one in InfraGuard? Oh, yeah. How do you so, spell that? <laughs> yes, yeah, no, I'm so glad you asked because I, I've had some people follow up and say, um, I couldn't find it. So you go to FBI and you're looking for I-N-F-R-A-G-A-R-D, InfraGuard. So it's infrastructure guard. Mm, got it. Yeah. Got it. And it's, it's really wonderful. And their bulletins are great. Uh, like I said, they're always, you know, give, give them notice, you know, don't ask them to show up tomorrow but they will do briefings. And you know, the other thing I would say is if you are a victim of a crime, a cyber crime, you can reach out to the FBI to ask for assistance and they're not gonna run to the newspaper and tell them your company's name. That's, that's not what they're about. They're there to see if there is a way from a law enforcement perspective to find the perpetrator and to seek legal remedies um, you know, through arrests and through the court system. The other thing is if you are a victim of ransomware, there is a nonprofit called noransom.org. They do have some, not all, decryption keys. So chances are you know, reach out to the FBI or DHS CISA, they may have decryption keys. If they don't, go to the nonprofit, they never charge for their services, and they may actually have a decryption key that may just work. Can you give us that website one more time? 
Sure. It's um, noransomware.org. Oof. That's a good one. Wow. That's that's some powerful set of resources right there. I, I would imagine, Teresa, that obviously, well, obvious to me, you're the founder and the president and the CEO of Fortalist Solutions and co-founder of Dark3. Do you even have any spare time right now? How <laughs> How are you even managing? I would imagine you have a full calendar. Yeah, well, you know, I luckily I have... Um, this great book that I read, Span of Control, um, <laughs> which was a great reminder to me um, on how to think about things. But yeah, it, it is incredibly busy right now. But one of the things I tell people is, you know, regardless of what profession you're in, you know, what gets measured is what gets done. And mm -hmm. you're of no value to yourself or anybody else, including work, but also your loved ones, if you don't make time for yourself. And I, a lot of people say to me, well, I just, I just don't have time. And I say, you don't have five minutes, like five minutes to stand up, go outside, take a deep breath and go back. Everybody can find five minutes. Um, so find that way. I actually book time on my calendar, um, in the morning before exercise to do, you know, meditation, um, people, you know, whether it's, reading scripture or just personal meditation or focusing on breathing. Um, I find, especially with these incidents happening at the frequency and the scale, I realize like, oh, I forgot to breathe this lot, you know, I'm not, or it's shallow breathing and that's not good for you. So be mm -hmm. thinking about what are the ways each day, you don't have to have an, an hour and, you know, you have something planned and you go off and, and do something really big. Um, for to renew and recharge each day there's there's different ways in small increments to sort of grab back what you need so that you have something in reserve um, to do things that you love to do and want to do um, both personally and professionally mm. well you are doing an amazing job of juggling all the things, taking care of yourself, taking care of your kids, running an amazing business. And at the end of the day, working really hard to help other people keep all of us safe as well. I mean, good grief. I, it's like, there's almost nothing you can't do. So I am so grateful you shared your time with us today. Uh, I think it's been enormously helpful and I sure have been sitting here writing down a bunch of notes and um, who knew the FBI would be so willing to work on your behalf as well. I had no idea. Yeah. Yeah. You got a great resource for everybody out there. Yep. Well, Teresa, I'm going to wrap this up with just five really off the cuff, easy rapid fire questions that are not cybersecurity related. So awesome. are you willing to play along for just a second? Yeah, let's okay. do that. All right. What is your go-to music you listen to when you work out? Grunge. Mm, okay. Uh, who do you think of as a mentor and what did you need to learn from them? Funny enough, I saw my parents as mentors. My dad on just how to maintain focus um, even if there's like chaos going on around you and my mom, how to have patience and grace. Um, even though we were moving every nine to 18 months. So how do you have patience and grace, even though everything around you is incredibly dynamic, I see them, they're my heroes and my mentors. And then I would actually say, um, you know, I've tapped into my husband as a mentor. Um, he's been a great resource and a sounding board for me, um, you know, and he's a great leader in his own right. And then lastly, you know, I like to read sort of like the classics about leadership and learn lessons from, mm. you know, I've read um, things about Mother Teresa, Colin Powell, um, you know, many generals and admirals. And uh, I, I like to just sort of pick up, you know, different lessons you know, that way. The other thing I would say just real quick is if you ever ask somebody to mentor you as a mentee, 
you will get more out of it if you put a lot of work into it. So don't like say, oh, great, I've got a mentor. I'm going to go now be a sponge and meet with them and have them, you know, relay wisdom to me that I'll then, you know, take away. Do the work, um, put the work into it and you will get a ton out of it. Oh, I am like triple high fiving you through that space right now. No doubt. Do the work. Do the work. Uh, what is the biggest misperception of you? That I'm tall. Oh, see, I never get that because I am really tall. <laughs> I'm really small. <laughs> oh, well, you know, and it's funny because ironically enough, I actually years ago thought you were tall as well. And a mutual friend of ours, Allison Levine, and I were talking about you and about an event. And she said, you know, she's not as tall as you like at all. Right. And I'm like, oh, well, I mean, I'm six feet tall, so not many people are. Um, but isn't that funny? So you play big. You're you're like the a Marvel superhero. You play big. <laughs> Yes. How about that? Yes. That's that's and, a different way to flip it, right? Knowing that, who plays you in a movie? I would pick um, Scarlett Johansson. Oh, good one. That's a good one. All right, last last question. We have $100, a full tank of gas, and the day off. Where are we going? Mm, the closest national park. <sighs> yeah, we have the best national park system. It's amazing. Best national park system. And I love that answer. If the tank of gas won't get me to the national park because I don't know where I'm starting from, get me to the beach or get me to a body of water. Mm, perfect. We we would have a good day either way, I'm sure. Well, if people want to get in touch with you, um, maybe find a little more information, buy your book, which you can get it at all fine retailers by tomorrow. Uh, where can they find you? Sure. So if um, if you're on Twitter, I'm I am Tracker Payton on Twitter. I'm on Facebook as myself um, with corporate accounts on Instagram, Facebook and Twitter and LinkedIn. I'm also on LinkedIn. And um, if anybody's interested in the book, there's an audio version. So super consumable, like a podcast, like like our conversation, Carrie. Um, but it's also available in ebook and hardcover. Fingers crossed, we're having some conversations now about an updated version in paperback. Uh, and you can get that, yeah, you know, Amazon. Uh, if you want a signed copy, Park Road Books in Charlotte um, will call me up and I will personalize every book. And uh, you can also find me on our webpage at fortalessolutions.com. Uh, I post blog posts and uh, my team does uh, just basically offering free advice for the greater good um, on sort of the latest cyber attacks just to keep people safe. Oh, gosh, I love it. Teresa, thank you for carving out time today to share not only part of your story, but how we can be better um, better community members, better consumers, better leaders, all of this. Uh, but it's been a pleasure. I'm grateful for you. Oh, this was great. You're a fantastic host. I'm so glad you have this platform and I hope you'll have me back. Ooh, let's do it. We'll book it. Thanks so awesome. much. Take care, Carrie. Fantastic. And again, thanks for joining me for this episode of Welcome to My Office. If you enjoy the show, please make sure you take a second to subscribe so you automatically get my new shows when they drop. Also, if you enjoyed the conversation today, lots of resources there, but I'd love if you left us a review so that more fearless leaders like you can discover us. It takes less than 60 seconds and it really makes a difference. And I also love reading the reviews. So feel free to connect with me on the social uh, media channels as well. LinkedIn, Instagram, Twitter, Facebook. I'm on Clubhouse a tiny bit. And you can always find me at carrielorenz.com. And finally, span of control, what to do when you're under pressure, overwhelmed, and ready to get what you really want is out in the world and available. And I'm super excited about that. I think it's going to be extraordinarily helpful, not only to you as an individual, but can help your family members, your friends, even teams you lead, identify their priorities, find focus, 
navigate obstacles, and find success, even during times of chaos or uncertainty. So thank you for sharing your time with me today. I'm glad you're here.